man. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Our first episode in the post-Trump era. You know, that feels good to say. I, I uh, just celebrated my father's 76th birthday um, as a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, someone who was shot in the Orange Rock Massacre February 8th of 1968, someone who has seen a lot. It felt good to be able to tell them that, Dad, all I got you for your birthday was a new president. That feels good to say. So everybody soak it up and enjoy your day. Today, we'll be interviewing Kristen Clark from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. But before we get to our interview, I wanted to have a family conversation with Democrats about this election based on what we think we know now. So let's not make it a small item because we have won the presidency. That's huge. That's a good thing. But we also underperformed in key races in Maine, North Carolina, Iowa, and Alaska. We didn't win high-profile races in places like Texas, Kentucky, and South Carolina. House Democrats are on pace to lose a net five seats, and that number could double. We need two Senate races in Georgia in January to save the Biden-Harris presidency from Mitch McConnell. And Democrats didn't flip a single state legislature with redistricting around the corner in 2021. So how are we feeling after this big election and how are we dealing with this fallout? We decided we would just go on Twitter, go on the news and start finger pointing. The establishment Democrats are blaming progressive rhetoric on issues like defunding the police and progressives rightly are pointing out that Democrats campaign too often tend to be bland, uninspiring and light on content, leaving themselves open to be defined by Republicans and overwhelmed by Republicans on Election Day. So what's my take? After a great day like we just had, I say they're both right. So to my moderate and establishment Democratic friends, folks like AOC are right. Your campaigns are trash. What do I mean by that? I get that healthcare and pre-existing conditions poll well and worked in 2018, but what else do you have to say? And if you know Republicans will try to hang defund the police around your neck, explain to people what you stand for and what kind of alternative you're offering both to progressives and defund, as well as conservatives who support people like Daniel Cameron and who can't fix their mouths to say cops who kill people should go to jail. You're going to be called a socialist anyway, so tell people what you believe. More importantly, as AOC points out, spend the money on actual humans knocking on doors. I cannot underscore that enough. Knocking on doors, making this case for you and on the digital strategy to breakthrough. But breakthrough by actually saying something. These Seinfeld campaigns are campaigns about nothing that are more about you not being a Trumper or regurgitating the party line on healthcare simply are not enough. But also to my progressive friends, here's the deal. When you say things like defund the Pentagon, someone said this cycle, that's not helpful to Democrats that are running outside of safe, highly democratic districts and they're the kiss of death for statewide candidates. And we can't govern and do the progressive things we all want to see if we don't win elections. And I'd much rather deal with a moderate Democrat than a Republican. It's called coalition building. And we don't get there if we're forcing candidates running in races that aren't safe to distance and defend from things our friends are saying. So where does that leave us? Democratic campaign organizations that have been running these god-awful campaigns, and I'm talking to you, DSCC, and you, Deep Trip. Take AOC up on her offer and get your digital field and analytics game up. 
defund the police and Medicare for all aren't going away, but you can run campaigns that explain what you believe in and why you believe in it, including why you don't agree with defund or Medicare for all. And for my progressives, let's not forget you're a part of a coalition that you don't lead because most Democratic voters don't agree with you on things like defund. And with that recognition should come an understanding that the things you say can ultimately cost us racists and make it harder to make these progressive priorities that many of us share reality. Let's play team ball, Democrats. Let's stop the finger pointing and let's have some accountability when we fuck up and let's be better. And part of it starts by not letting 80-year-olds dictate how campaigns in 2020 should be run. The Democrats who created the world where Trumpism could be successful don't get to dictate to everyone how we dig our way out of it. And that's that on that. Now, this interview we're airing today with Kristen Clark taped before our elections this past week. But I thought it was important to have someone like Kristen on to talk about what our agenda should be for the federal courts. And we talked a bit about rebuilding what looks like a Biden-Harris Department of Justice and specifically the Civil Rights Division, where we'll try to restore voting rights and actually hold police departments accountable. Something we should all agree on. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Well, welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I've actually been waiting on this episode for a very long period of time because I have someone who is one of the most brilliant jurists and legal minds that we have and who can help us break down many of the things that are going on around us. And we are actually... Uh, uh, going to delve into this uh, Supreme Court nomination. I don't even know if we want to call it a nomination process, but whatever the hell it was, we'll, we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. I want to welcome uh, Kristen Clark to the Bakari Sellers podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's chaos. Yes, I know. Exactly. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming on. We always start off episodes by having our guests kind of walk through the arc of their career. You know, a lot of people just think that we imagine or imagine that we just end up in these spaces without any steps that lead up to them. So walk our guests through your first job out of law school with the DOJ Civil Rights Division to the work you do now leading the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for being such a great voice for um, us as Black folks. And I'm just always breaking down so brilliantly all of the issues that we're contending with when it comes to race and injustice in our country. 
So I'm one of these people, I went to law school and my game plan from day one was to become a civil rights lawyer. And a lot of people start off law school that way. I'm going to mm-hmm. go to do social justice. I'm going to fight the power. And I just always stayed firmly on that path. And the lure of making a, you know, maybe three, four times what I made starting off as a Justice Department attorney never dissuaded me. I um, I went into law school for, for this purpose, and I've always just stuck very firmly to this path of trying to figure out how we can use the law to make our world a bit more just, especially for Black people. How can we use the law to close these, you know, wide, enormous gaps when it comes to inequality between Black folks and white folks? Uh, how can we carry forth the tradition of the giants of the past, the Thurgood yeah. Marshalls and the Constance Baker Motley's? Who did you look up to? I mean, for me, I actually wanted to be a civil rights attorney as well. That's funny that you said that. I felt like you were speaking to my soul. Um, but I looked up to Charles Ogletree. Who was somebody in your space that you looked up to or wanted to walk like or be like uh, who, was a, who was a legal mind? Well, so not a legal mind, but one person I looked up to a lot uh, was Manning Marable, who's no oh, longer course. with us. Yeah great historian. And um, when I was in law school, the best part of going to law school at Columbia was all the time I spent outside the law school working with Dr. Manning Marable, the late Dr. Manning Marable, who ran the um, African-American studies department at Columbia. I just found that um, that experience helped to keep me grounded, right? Like you go to law school and you can sometimes get lost in these theories they try to teach you about originalism and <laughs> that you never use when you practice law. Trust me, I, I don't. You don't use anything that they teach you in law school. Although when Amy Coney pre- Barrett's about to uh, go to work on the Supreme Court with her originalist outlook of the world. But that aside for a moment, um, <laughs> you know, I I spent a lot of time with Dr. Marable teaching AFAM to college students, organizing conferences on race and criminal justice, and being engaged in protests around police brutality. And that experience really helped to keep me grounded. I never got lost in all of the, um, you know, law school can be very... It's all about the black letter law, just understanding the case law and applying it to the facts. It and doesn't have real people involved. Yeah, in it. exactly. Yeah. So he was somebody who, who influenced me a whole lot. That's dope. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that name. My father listens to these episodes and he will he's going to call me and give me an earful mm-hmm. about Manning Marble. So for my non for my non lawyer listeners out there, what exactly is the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law? So we were founded in 1963. Medgar Evers voting rights activists in Mississippi, working hard to capture people not yet registered, gets assassinated at his own home. It's the heyday of the civil rights movement. And President John F. Kennedy says, you know what, we need to convene a meeting of lawyers at the White House immediately, not just Medgar Evers. I mean, it's all of these events that are transpiring around the country and the government cannot do the work on its own. So he called private lawyers to the White House, about 244 of them. And his charge to them was, you all need to figure out how you can start to use the law in your communities to help victims of discrimination. And so what makes us unique among the organizations, the the legacy civil rights organizations doing this work is that we're all about 
pushing the private bar to provide mm-hmm. support, pro bono support for the work that we do. So every case that we bring fighting voter suppression, every case fighting Ben Carson and the things he's doing at HUD, the work we're doing to fight mass incarceration or to beat back hate crimes, we do standing shoulder to shoulder with lawyers and law firms who support the work that we do. Now, as of as of this date of this taping, President Trump and Mitch McConnell have filled every single vacancy on the federal courts of appeal, where almost 30% of appeals courts are Trump appointees. At some point, well, later today, a third of the Supreme Court will be Trump appointees with well over 200 district court appointments. This just terrifies me just reading it out loud. Can you put these numbers or those numbers in perspective for our listeners in terms of how aggressive President Trump has been in confirming his judicial nominees? And what, in your view, is the Trump-McConnell legacy on the courts? So I'm literally exhaling right now because of all the things that this president has done. The damage to our federal courts, I think, is um, perhaps the, the deepest, starkest and most devastating. He came in with an agenda and with Mitch McConnell by his side, he has executed on that agenda of appointing extremists, people outside the mainstream, many of whom bring horrible records when it comes to civil rights. And they have literally filled every, virtually every vacancy out there on the district courts, the circuit courts. And, you know, now we've, we've got the Supreme Court. These nominees have been overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. So they're not just ideologues who are prepared to carry forth President Trump's agenda in many instances. We've also just turned the clock back to the 60s when it comes to diversity on our courts. We're already seeing the impact. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We've filed about three dozen lawsuits since the pandemic uh, started to protect voting rights. We've gotten some wins. We've beaten back some states that have had these burdensome, you know, mm-hmm. notary requirements and witness requirements for absentee voters. We've opened up access to vote by mail and have succeeded in uh, beating back states that have restrictions on who gets to vote by mail. And some of the wins have stuck, but some of our wins are getting reversed at the circuit court level by Trump appointees. Mm-hmm. They are prepared to put their thumb on the scale of injustice at every turn. It's painful. It's really painful. And I think it's going to take generations, frankly, to undo the damage. Are there things that Democrats can learn from Mitch McConnell and how he's led such an aggressive program of processing and confirming court nominees? How to be heartless and unprincipled. (laughs) Okay. Well, that, that's that's <laughs> that's one thing you could. But I, I think I, in all seriousness, I think that 2021, when we catch our breath, we have a lot of work to do to figure out how we restore balance to the courts, how we address the diversity setbacks on the courts. Our courts should reflect the diversity of the communities they serve, not just when it comes to race and gender, but ideology. And that's just not been the case with respect to what Trump has done. Uh, to the courts. just t- He's taken a sledgehammer and just has yeah. caused mass destruction to our judiciary. You know, I want to I want to ask you two questions leading off that. One, one is I put into the Democratic platform the fact that we needed to expand the judiciary, something we haven't done since Jimmy Carter, add 80 to 100 new circuit court 
district court judges because our population has grown, the caseload has grown. I think it would make our caseload more efficient. What do you make of this notion of court packing, expanding the court, these stumbles that we've had, and now we have this new vice presidential bipartisan commission, which I hope he put someone like you on. Uh, what do you make of all of these different terms and, and the way we're looking at actually reforming our federal court system if we do anything? By the way, I always tell people that if you want a progressive idea to die, just put it in a bipartisan commission. It'd die slowly. <laughs> so I do think 2021, when we catch our breath from this election cycle, when we catch our breath from this Supreme Court, quote, nomination process, end quote, that it is worth taking a, a look at the courts that have re remained pretty static in terms of its size. Our country has grown dramatically in terms of population. And, you know, the number of cases, the complexity of cases has changed over time. So I think there may be some empirical reasons why this could be a moment to expand the size of some courts, some circuit courts, some district courts, and perhaps the Supreme Court. I'm not a, a, the strongest proponent of, of court packing uh, because I think that any party, frankly, can embrace this concept of court packing and just can result in this kind of endless spiral. But I think 2021 is a moment to just say, are the courts in a healthy place and are there some empirical reasons for maybe shifting the size uh, of the courts, changing the way courts are structured, putting in things like, you know, retirement age requirements, et cetera, or, or limits on lengths of service? Yeah, we we actually in South Carolina, uniquely enough, I believe it's either 70 or 72, our circuit court judges reach a mandatory retirement age. And yeah. that has been really healthy for the for the system because it's although it's not a lifetime appointment i think you sit for six years or something like that you're elected by the legislature but we do have some constant turnover where people aren't there until they're they're 90 or, or 100 or whatever it may be do you think thing. do you think that that should be the charge of this bipartisan commission how much stock do you put into to this bipartisan commission it kind of came out of nowhere last week yeah. Oh, I think a lot of people are talking about court reform right now. So in a way, I think it's an inevitable discussion in 2021. And um, these discussions have been had in the past. And, you know, 2021, I think, is absolutely a moment to get to work thinking about those kinds of concepts. Why do you think Democrats shy away from having these conversations about the federal judiciary where our conservative brethren embrace it? It moves the base. It's always a talking point. It's always an issue. You know, uh, there were, you know, some of our friends on the far right urged the president, uh, the current president, when he was a candidate to release the list. You know, I was speaking to many people who were running for president at the time saying that they should also release a list of judges because I just think that's something that would move voters because at the end of the day, legislation is always great. But a lot of the rights and liberties that we fought for have been had through our judicial system. Yeah. Well, if you will allow me, I would uh, prefer to answer that through a racial lens. You know, okay. I do think that um, for black and brown people, we need to elevate the importance of the courts in the way that we think about our political power and the power of our voices at the ballot box. I do think that for black people, the court is a life or death issue. You think about, you know, death penalty cases that get heard by the court um, where you may have, you know, a black person on death row 
And it literally comes down to the decisions of judges, whether or not, you know, that that person's sentence gets shifted to life. We've got the Affordable Care Act case. We have um, cases that have decimated the Voting Rights Act, our nation's most important federal civil rights law. And so I think that we need to do more work to make sure that communities of color understand that this has to be one of our top line issues when we think about the consequences of elections in our country and what's at stake. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Businesses have had to be flexible this year, working remotely to pivoting their business models for long-term survival and growth. You know, I think about the restaurants that are moving their diners outdoors and adding takeout or catering, some consumer packaged good companies have shifted to focus more on surface cleaners or personal hygiene products. Major retailers are now selling face masks. If you're in charge of hiring for your business, these pivots have made your job even more challenging, especially if you have to hire brand new roles. Thankfully, there's one place that you can always count on to make hiring faster and easier. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job boards with one click. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful technology, it finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself right now, you could try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-K-A-R-I. Let ZipRecruiter take hiring off your plate so you can focus on growing your business. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Bakari. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, let me let me just ask you, uh, I, I, I've asked this to uh, Ellie Mistel and Brian Fallon. I've asked this to David Axelrod as well. One of the things that uh, when I'm when I am being critical of one of my favorite presidents, the 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama, I always talk about the administration's lack of of impetus around the judiciary. How would you, just as I ask you to judge uh, the Trump administration and McConnell, judge their legacy on the courts? How would you judge Barack Obama's legacy on the court, understanding that he still had a McConnell hurdle to deal with, but the first two years, even Rahm Emanuel was quoted as saying that this ain't something that's the top top of our priority list. 
I think during the Obama years, there was respect for principle and tradition and rules, right? Which Mitch McConnell has had no problem just, um, you know, bringing the sledgehammer to at every turn. It is so unfortunate. There were so many Black nominees, highly qualified and exceptional, who just collected dust because uh, McConnell refused to move them through the Senate. Can I share with you something that I dream of? If we Please can turn do. the clock back. Yes. If you could turn the clock back. I remember being at the White House when um, Obama, President Obama announced Merrick Garland's nomination. There were a few of us who met at the White House afterwards for a little debrief. And, you know, Garland was an interesting choice. He had tremendous bipartisan support. And I think for President Obama, it's like, how are you going to use political gamesmanship here? Because Garland is somebody who is supported overwhelmingly by Democrats and Republicans when he was voted through. And they wouldn't give him the courtesy of a meeting. 460 some odd days. Yeah. The Constitution says the president gets to appoint the Senate has to provide advice and consent. There are two things that must happen. And when President Trump made that nomination and the Senate failed to do anything, to me, you have fully abdicated your responsibility to provide advice and consent. So after about 30, 60 days of the Senate making clear that they were going to do nothing, I wish President Obama had just sworn Garland in and said, you know what? Justice Garland, report to work. I did my part under what the Constitution Mm. said. The Senate didn't do its part. And, you know, maybe that leads to some legal challenge that eventually gets its way up to an eight-member court. But what do those words mean if the Senate chose to do nothing? Nothing at all. That cannot be what was intended when the founders wrote, you've got to provide advice and consent. The Barrett nomination is not a comparator. Never in our nation's history have we had a nominee go forward while tens of millions of voters were actively casting ballots in a general election and and doing so to determine who will be the president, who should be the candidates <laughs> that fill this vacancy arising at this moment. But the but the the Garland situation, I think, would have been an interesting scenario to test what the Constitution really means, where you've got the Senate that's just kind of put up this brick wall of opposition. I've never that. I mean, that's why I love I love your voice. I love you on social media. I love your you know the things that you do at your organization because I truly never even thought about that. I never even thought about that possibility. I've always been stuck on the fact. Then we'll get to this question a little bit later. Uh, but I've always been stuck on the fact that I thought he should have nominated Kentonji Brown Jackson. You then you would have because no one was mobilized around Merrick Garland. I mean, with all due respect to the to the former, uh, or I don't think he's still the chief, but the former chief of that of that D.C. Circuit. You know, he he is a great jurist. Do not get me wrong, but the excitement level wasn't there. And I think by and you know that you're going to have this trouble. I think you could have built a groundswell movement around somebody like Kentonji Brown Jackson who happens to be Paul Ryan's cousin and one of the weirdest nuanced facts <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> facts that we have. Uh, and that's always been the way that I think about it, which leads me to my next question about Vice President Biden. He promised to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. If you were developing your shortlist, 
uh, for black women that's based on your experience and your work and who would be the perfect fit for that role, who would also be confirmable. I don't know if confirmable is a word, but as JD, you you make up stuff. Who was on that shortlist? Well, I think there are so many amazing Black women who are in that pipe court pipeline right now, um, who are on our district courts and, and circuit courts. Kintaji Brown Jackson, I think, is a fine example. There's also um, Judge Kruger out in California on the state Supreme Court. She's getting um, a whole lot of buzz, a whole lot of buzz. Yeah, yeah. So I think there, there are no shortage of women who are already on the bench and you know, I also, the, the thing I think about with the passing of Justice Ginsburg is that it's for, for the first time since the 60s, we've not had a civil rights lawyer on the Supreme Court. We mm. had Thurgood Marshall, who brought that deep perspective as somebody who for his whole life just was a practicing civil rights lawyer on the bench, helping to really move our jurisprudence forward when it comes to race. And then Justice Ginsburg, true and through civil rights lawyer. And I think that's an important perspective to have on the bench. And we don't have that now. I'm so grateful for Justice Sotomayor, who is doing work, work with her powerful dissents right now and speaking truth to power and making clear when the majority gets it wrong. But um, all that to say, I do hope that a future president will think about how to mix it up. Civil rights lawyers are very much worthy, I think, of donning that black robe. And that that's a great segue to this question. Let's talk about who gets to be a federal judge. For the layperson listening, where do federal judges typically typically come from, particularly in terms of the kind of professional experience we typically see in judicial appointees? One of the things I've noticed is I'm not I don't I don't recall having too many other than maybe Thurgood Marshall, too many uh, people who come from a criminal defense background or like an innocence project, someone who brings that perspective to the bench. So just if you were, you know, teaching a group of high school kids, civics right now, where do many of these justices and judges come from and where should we be looking? Yeah, we should be looking for people who have the capacity to be fair and impartial, people who are smart and who just want to do the right thing. People who understand the term equal justice under law and can be truly committed to that principle every day when they're on the bench. And to me, it doesn't matter what background, but we need to be very intentional about mixing up the backgrounds. President Trump has loved dipping into corporate law firms for a lot of his nominees and anyone that the Federalist Society and Heritage Foundation says um, he should put forward. But um, I think that our courts work better when we have people who bring varying perspectives. And just as you say, criminal defense attorneys, you know, civil rights lawyers, black prosecutors, you know, it's important that we have a mix of perspectives to make sure that we're arriving at the right outcomes. We're able to have a robust, deliberative debate and discussion about the facts that lands us at the right outcomes in these cases. You know, we're watching right now one of the most I don't know how to how to articulate this. It's a hundred and eighty degree difference from, and it's 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 a stark contrast. Uh, you saw this the last time you saw this was with Thurgood Marshall being replaced by Clarence Thomas. You now have Ruth Bader Ginsburg being replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. And so when we when we're looking at that lack of 
civil rights background, kind of just social justice background, I think it's very evident in the 180 um, that we're, we've been making. Let me ask you a, a question, though. Do you think that if you were asked, and you, you may be asked in the first 100 days, what are some of the things that Joe Biden needs to put in his agenda about the area of civil rights law and the judiciary. I know there are so many things to change, the Paris Climate Accord, repealing many of these executive actions. I get all of that, coronavirus task force. But just in the in your daily bailiwick, what, what are some of the things you want to see done in the first 100 days? If there is an opportunity to course correct, um, we need a civil rights division, a justice department that's back in business. Um, we need to. Scrap- Did you just say you want to be the you want to be the head of the of the civil <laughs> rights division over the Department of Justice? <laughs> well, you know, I started off my career there, and it has been horrifying to see what's been coming out of there. Virtually no cases enforcing the voting who rights was your, act. Who was your boss over there? So I started at the tail end of uh, the Clinton administration. Okay. So Janet Reno was uh, in charge. And then two months later, Bush v. Gore, I was down monitoring elections in the Mississippi, Louisiana, and uh, things shifted dramatically during my <laughs> first months as a civil rights lawyer at DOJ. But I stuck it out for about five years under the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. I believe deeply. I didn't want to give my seat up to somebody else. I was there for a reason to do good. But then after about five years, I realized I was probably losing any street cred as a civil rights lawyer. And and so I, I left. But I, I, I tried to do the right thing. But this is something different. What's happening right now? I mean, during the Bush administration, there were moments that were deeply frustrating. Mm-hmm. But to have a Justice Department that is weighing in on affirmative action cases on the side of those who seek to do harm, to see how they have just ceased enforcement of, um, like I said, the Voting Rights Act, fair lending, fair housing cases. And in many respects, they're often doing the exact opposite. During the pandemic, they are filing briefs in cases, you know, protect, standing up for people who are uh, resisting, you know, pandemic restrictions. I mean, they've just completely lost their way over there. So putting them back on um, back on track, I think, has to be a top priority. And do you know there has never been a woman confirmed to lead the Civil Rights Division? I've never known that. I never, I never knew acting. that. There have been acting people. There's never been a woman. You know, I always think back to Deval Patrick and Tony West working over there. Those are the yeah. two people that I go to often. But I've never known. I mean— I would put you on the short list to be a Supreme Court justice, but it, it, you know, you you definitely deserve to run. You deserve to do anything you want to do over there. Which brings me to who do you think is on the short list for, uh, or who would you like to see if you were asked about Attorney General? Something that maybe you'll be deciding or be a part of deciding after uh, November fourth. These are fun questions that I don't deal about at all during my day my day to day work, which is you know. Just making sure we can get through today. Making sure we'll vote. <laughs> I just want you to have a little fun. Just go yeah, ahead. Just so, like we like we in the like we just, you know, <laughs> having having a drink and talking it up. <laughs> so who who would run the Justice Department? Mm-hmm. Kerry Washington. Okay, is that happened too much. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. Kerry would be like, I'm cool. <laughs> I think, I think, I think to be very honest with you, that it's a really good chance it's gonna be somebody like Doug Jones. I know people hate when I say that, but there mm-hmm. is, you know, it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult uphill battle for Doug Jones in Alabama today. And if he's not fortunate enough to be a United States senator, I think he would be an absolutely phenomenal 
attorney general, somebody who has that expertise in being a U.S. attorney, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I, I the state AGs have really been showing up. The state Tish, Tish James, Tish yep. James is a bad woman. I don't know. Yep. I don't know how she gets I, I, they. Well, I mean, if we have the Senate, it won't matter. But Republicans would make her confirmation. Hell. Yeah. But state AGs may be a place to look, you know, and I know uh, Kamala Harris, Senator Harris gets a lot of um, gets a hard time for the work she did wearing that prosecutorial hat that she did. But somebody's got to do that role. And I thought that when she was at the helm of the uh, state AG's office in California, that she did a she did a great job wow. and was very aggressive about enforcing civil rights laws. I was at the New York Attorney General's office at, at that time and um, have an appreciation for the work that she did during that role. But that may be a place to look. I think that we have to do a better job of educating our people about the roles just the basic roles in the courtroom, the roles there are to play in, in justice. Everybody I talk to, it, it, they seem to be taken aback when I say that the most powerful person in the courtroom is not the judge, it's the prosecutor. Yeah. They, they, they just, and we see that with Daniel Cameron, who went into the yeah. uh, grand jury and did not even, um, he did not even bring, uh, give the grand jury the opportunity to bring forth these charges. So we have to be articulate about these roles. I, I know that we are we are leaving and I, I, I'm going to wrap up with you shortly, but I loved that you talked about what you dream of. And so I want to end there. I mean, I, I dream of a new, of the way we reimagine the country. I hope that Joe Biden and Justice Breyer have a great conversation over the next 60 days and Justice Breyer's like, I'm out. You know, like <laughs> you can you can appoint my replacement today. I, that would think would be great for democracy. But what are some of the things you want to see tomorrow? I know you live 24 hours at a time, especially right now. But what are some of the things you want to see tomorrow and uh, as we go forward after the third? Man, so I would love to see like the convergence of a powerful movement of protest converge with uh, just powerful exercise of the right to vote this season and just see where that takes us in 2021 if we keep up that intensity. If um, in 2021, we continue to march and protest and demand the change and reform that's so long overdue and continue to show up at the ballot box, right? It's not just about these presidential elections. They try and turn us off in these off election years and say, oh yeah, those races don't matter, but they do, right? I would love to see what our democracy looks like when people are just really turning up and turning out at shocking, record-shattering levels at every moment and 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 see what kind of change comes from that. That to me uh, would be really exciting. That's my dream too. So maybe we'll, we, we will say our prayers together and, and those <laughs> dreams will come through. But thank you so much, Kristen Clark, for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. This has been very informative and engaging for me. And I think our listeners at The Ringer and Spotify are better for having you where you are and listening to what you're talking about. And I hope that there is a role for you uh, in whatever role you want that to be in the future. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me. So that was a great interview with Kristen. While we try to figure out what this Biden-Harris administration will focus on, all of these efforts will be for not in getting them elected if Mitch McConnell is still your Senate majority leader. And that's why in today's one last thing, I want to leave you with 
how we can all be helpful for the two Senate runoffs in January. So in case you missed it, neither U.S. Senate race in Georgia had a clear majority of 50%, leaving us with Democrat John Ossoff running against incumbent Republican Senator David Perdue and Democrat and Morehouse man Raphael Warnock against incumbent Republican Senator Kelly Leffler. Why does this matter? Well, after the elections this week, the Senate is tied 48-48 with four races remaining. The two races in Georgia are going to a runoff in January, and races in Alaska and North Carolina will likely go to Republicans. So that means Republicans will hold a 50 to 48 edge with two seats in Georgia determining just how much a Biden-Harris administration can get done. And by get done, I'm talking about what kind of COVID relief we get, including what stimulus payments look like, rent relief, et cetera, what type of police reform we get and what kind of voting rights reform we get and what type of student loan debt relief we get, what type of judges we get, absolutely everything. So every single Democrat or person of a reasonable mind needs to find a way to be helpful in Georgia. Here's what that looks like. Go to warnockforgeorgia.com and electjohn.com. I like that uh, web address, Ossoff electjohn.com and donate and volunteer to do virtual phone banking for both candidates. My friends Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright have been organizing in Georgia for years throughout the Black Voters Matter Fund. So consider volunteering and donating to them at www.blackvotersmatter.org. And Stacey Abrams' organization, the New Georgia Project and Fair Fight, need our support for voter registration and the legal work protecting votes in Georgia. So support them too at newgeorgiaproject.org and fairfight.com. I don't want to hear shit about progressives' agendas or who should be hired or anything else if we can't flip the Senate. We're looking at at least two more years of a Senate that will fight progress on all fronts, tooth and nail. Let's win Georgia and let's give Joe and Kamala the Senate they need to work. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. We'll see you again on Thursday.